0: We can't still w- do what you're still smiling <laughs> you like, well, well. in inside joke. inside joke inside joke cookie cookie <laughs> cookie has experienced poetic justice on the side of, of things so that's good stuff all right well let's go ahead and let's go ahead and get started um, can anybody see the display just fine great all right let's open with prayer thank you God once again for allowing us to continue this journey through the New Testament as we dive into Acts and as we explore the Apostle Paul. um, Help us, Lord, to see ourselves in the journey, see ourselves in your word, so that we can grow closer to each other and to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so uh, we did a quick overview of Acts last week. Um, we're going to dive more into the content, particularly the, the, the missionary journeys that the Apostle Paul goes on. And as we talked about, Acts focuses almost exclusively on Paul's missionary journeys, but it's really important to remember that while Paul is doing this, there are many, many other people doing many, many other things going around growing the church. We just get a very uh, focused view on this one person and certainly his amazing work that he did. Um, Just to recount, uh, in Acts we have the story of the conversion. Uh, And so he had this vision from Jesus and went from being the greatest opponent of Christianity to its greatest proponent. Um, So the last 16 uh, chapters of Acts chronicle three missionary journeys that Paul took with again the focus being of expanding uh, the, the, the growth of the church outside of the Jewish realm to more Gentile areas and specifically coming west. Right? Yeah, west. Okay? Um, these missionary trips that Paul engaged solidified Christianity's place in the world and assured that it would be more than just sort of this Jewish sect of people who believed, Jewish people who believed that Jesus was the long awaited Messiah. Um, that there was a monumental decision that allowed for that to happen that a lot of times goes unnoticed, and we're going to talk about that today. So, Paul's first journey. Um, about a three-year trip, so a three-year road trip, if you will, from 46 through 49 CE. So, again, imagining the time frame, this is some 12 to 15 years after Jesus' death. Um, Began in Antioch and continued over to Cyprus and then modern-day Turkey. Uh, And on this journey, he was accompanied by a man named Barnabas. It was kind of his sidekick, uh, his missionary cohort, if you will. And if you want to sort of get a feel, I don't know how easy it is to see this, um, but uh, the movement, again, east to west. So he kind of came down here through Cyprus, came up to Asia minor and then backtracked. Oh, when he got into Asia minor, sorry, he came up in here and went around in the land a little bit and shot back and then came around. I don't know why he didn't just go that way. Maybe there was a big wall or something, I don't know. But anyway, he sort of shot back here. Maybe he wanted to check on some of these other places after he had had visit to them and started them. Um, Turn, if you will, to Acts 15. Um what is known as the Jerusalem conference, and I was alluding to this a little bit earlier is a pretty significant development in the early church and set the stage for everything that came from it, including all the way up to today and going forward <clears throat> uh, i'll just I'll go ahead and read it, so we're going to go through about twenty one so it's a little bit of a long read um I'm going to tell it rather than read it. I'll do my best for those of you that were at the at the retreat and heard Casey talking about telling the story rather than reading the story. Uh, then certain individuals came from Judea and were teaching the brothers, and they said, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So everybody understand that? So there's this understanding that a prerequisite these people were saying a prerequisite to becoming part of this new follower is you had to be circumcised, which meant the Jewish people had that already taken care of. The Gentiles, as they were going out and spreading out, they weren't circumcised. So what some people were saying was first step, get circumcised. Second step, then you can come and hang with us. Okay? All right. So had a prerequisite. Verse 2. And after Paul and Barnabas had 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 no small discussion and debate with them. Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to discuss this question with the apostles and with the elders. So the church is still centered in Jerusalem. So they were sent on their way by the church, and as they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, they reported the conversation of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the believers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders. And they reported all that God had done for them. But some believers who belonged to the sect of the Pharisees stood up and said it is necessary for them to be circumcised and ordered to keep the law of Moses. Now that would not surprise us that some of the sects of the Pharisees would be pretty strict on circumcision, correct, from what we know? The apostles and the elders met together to consider this matter. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, My brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that I should be the one through whom the Gentiles would hear the message of the good news and become believers. And God, who knows the human heart, testified to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as they did to us. And in cleansing their hearts by faith, he has made no distinction between them and us. Who is them and us? The Gentiles and the Jewish Christians, right? Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing on the neck of the disciples a yoke that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? On the contrary, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. The whole assembly kept silence and listened to Barnabas and Paul as they told of all the signs and wonders that God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, My brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first looked favorably on the Gentiles to take from among them a people for his name. This agrees with the words of the prophets as it is written. And you got the words of the prophets. Skip down to verse 19. Therefore, I have reached the decision that we should not trouble those Gentiles who are turning to God, but we should write to them to abstain only from things polluted by idols and from fornication, and from whatever has been strangled and from blood. It's the word of the Lord. So, the first missionary trip that Paul went on was more or less interrupted by this conflict between Jews and Gentiles regarding the future of the early church. The main issue, of course, as we talked about, is does one wishing to become a follower of Jesus have to become a Jew first, is essentially what it is. (coughs) And it's really odd for us to think in that regard, but we gotta remember that up until this point, mostly, um, anybody who was a follower of Jesus was a Jew. So this was really the first time that this had been expanded in that kind of a way. This was a bitter division between the early church. Um, Jewish Christians, some, were saying Jesus was a Jew, This is a Jewish faith. This is within the Judaism faith. You have to become a Jew first before you can become a follower of Jesus. It's just plain and simple. Why does nobody see that? The Gentiles were like, this Jesus guy was bigger than just you Jewish people. He came for the whole world. Anybody can become a follower of Jesus by believing in him and following him. You don't have to be any particular other religion first. So we have direct access. That makes more sense to us, but it is easy to understand, if you think about it, why the Jewish Christian some would have thought the way that they did and had this discussion. And this was a big, big deal, all right? So it helped that you had the apostle Peter and this Paul guy who had once been a Pharisee and now had turned, flipped, right? That both of them were arguing that person, that the Gentile people did not have to become a Jewish first before they became a follower of Jesus. So they were speaking out and welcoming the Gentiles. And so it's interesting the way that the council des- describes it. They're not going to trouble them. So I guess you could call it tacit endorsement. But the main thing is that they're not going to put a roadblock up in front of any Gentile who wants to follow Jesus without becoming a Jew. They do say we need to make sure that they observe some of the basic practices like, you know, not eating food offered to idols and all this kinds of other stuff. So maybe this was maybe this was the compromise plan, right? You know, it's like we're not going to go all in with you Pharisees, but we're going to ask that they follow some of the, you know, important other important stuff. But but we're going to make this decision. So, why was this such a monumental decision in the history, if you will, of the church. It did not limit the numbers of people that could convert. Right. did not limit the number of people. It opened it up. Well, it changed to becoming all our people are saved through grace. Right. Not that Paul would certainly unpack that, yeah. as we'll get to in a little bit, yeah. Yeah. Um, had the council said, you know, Jesus was a Jew, the Pharisees got a point, you gotta be a Jewish person first, none of us would be sitting at this table right now. I would I would be either teaching English or in a rock band. <coughs> <laughs> and, and and probably and probably in like a rock band that, you know, is like going around in the summer times doing like, you know, nostalgic tours. Um, you know because I, I would be way beyond my rock band prime but yeah I mean that's the thing right there would not be church it would honestly it would have died out probably a long time ago so so the the monumentalness of this decision cannot be underestimated um, not the trouble to trouble the Gentiles is why we're here today so I just I always like to point that out because I don't I think that gets missed um, it also is interesting. Um, that in an instance, when the church had an opportunity as far as who they could consider to be part of it, to sort of narrowly define or fling the doors open wide, their first move was to fling the doors open wide. Um, the church has come at this crossroads time and time and time again. And sometimes it has chosen to narrow, and sometimes it has chosen to fling the door open wide and just. Grace, like like Betty said, just act on grace. So um, I personally want to default to Acts 15 because it kind of worked, and I think it still does. Can I ask something? I didn't realize until today day that James really had a big influence. And wasn't that Jesus' brother, James? <sighs> um, there was a brother... Jesus had a brother James. I think, I think that I think that is yes, yeah. Because it does it. It looks like it was sort of a unilateral decision. Now, he was mentioned, I think the the council that that James head up had a group discussion. It the way it reads, it's kind of like James unilaterally says, "Boom, right, this is it." Um, but but there was probably some discussion that happened around it. But James. Brother Jesus at the time was sort of heading it up. Okay. Yep. All right. So, Acts 15, big time. Uh, Paul takes a rest and then gears up for the second one. Happened maybe, what, six years later? Four to six years later. Um, This one, uh, he kind of picked up where he left off and went further. So Asia Minor, but then also further west to Athens and Corinth. Um, Barnabas got kind of left in the dust because um, he did not, he was not on board with the council's decision. He thought you really needed to be a Jewish person first. So Paul and Barnabas had a breakup. And so now Paul had a new right-hand man in Silas. Um, so this was a much larger journey, if you sort of look. This is where we went last time, kind of around here. So now we're going way up over here, we're going in reverse order, we're coming all through here, back up into Antioch, so this is right where he was before. But then we're going way up into here, into the sort of northwestern modern-day Turkey. And then we even go further up into Greece, Macedonian Greece, Uh, Athens, Corinth, zip back over to Ephesus. Of course, Corinth is where we get the book. Corinthians, Ephesus is where Ephesians, all down through here. And then this is like a straight shot back. I figure by this time he was probably ready to get home um, because it took a while. Um, We have this wonderful story in the very next chapter, in fact, if you want to turn to it. Um, of Acts, of Paul and Silas being thrown into prison um, in Philippi, which is where, of course, we get Philippians. <coughs> um, they're thrown into prison because um, they had a... look. At, if you look at chapter 16, verse 16... Um, One day as we were going to the place of prayer, we met a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners a great deal of money by fortune telling. So she would tell people's fortunes and she would get paid for it and she would give the money to her owners. When she followed Paul and us, so this is Silas writing, she would cry out, These men are slaves of the most high God who proclaim to you a way of salvation. She kept doing this for many days. And it's kind of interesting that the healing came because Paul and Silas got so tired of this woman following them and yelling out. I mean, not bad stuff, but just they got tired of it. Paul, very much annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I order you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her because you're annoying. And it came out, which one would think that would be a thing to celebrate, right? But 19, when her owners saw that their hope of making money was gone, they threw Paul and Silas, they had Paul and Silas thrown into prison. So yeah. there's so much that's corrupt about this, right? You've got, you've got this, 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 this girl that's enslaved and is being uh, used for her, her, her gift or her curse, whatever you want to call it. And then when she's cured of that, the men attack the people who made her well um, and uh, they throw them into prison. So <clears throat> when they were in prison, um, this earthquake came and it broke the chains loose. Um, the chains around Paul and Silas and everybody, I think. about twenty. Look at verse 25. Around midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was an earthquake so violent that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened The jailer woke up and saw the prison doors wide open. He drew a sword and was about to kill himself because there was no way he was going to survive uh, his boss if every prisoner was able to get free. Um, But Paul shouted out loud, "Voice, Do not harm yourself. We're still here. The jailer called for lights and rushing in, he fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. And they said to them, Sirs, what do I need to do to be saved? And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. So we get this um, really powerful story of, again, about, it's interesting, kind of going on with with a woman who was enslaved both to these men and their corrupt ways and to this spirit of divination. Now we have a prison guard who is enslaved, enslaved to the idea that when people get freed, he is held responsible for that. And enslaved to the point where he is fully ready to take his own life for that. And Paul and Silas, who are in prison, free him. If you want to kind of look at it that way, it's a marvelous story um, of that of that thing. And not just him, but his whole family um, became believers in Jesus. Um, and then you get a really interesting thing. Look at verse forty-five. When morning came. The magistrate sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported a message to Paul saying, the magistrate sent word to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul replied, they have beaten us in public, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison and now they're going to discharge us in secret. Certainly not. Let them come and take us out ourselves. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were unafraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. And they were afraid, excuse me, when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. After leaving the prison, they went to Lydia's home, and when they had seen and encouraged the brothers and sisters there, they departed. So, we talked about last time that Paul, a Pharisee, a Jewish Pharisee, used to, Uh, persecute Christians, now is furthering the church, happens to be a Roman citizen as well. And this would come in really handy for situations just like this, because remember, the backdrop is the Roman Empire is over all of this, all of the map we had before. Um, And there was a hierarchy. Um, if you were not a Roman citizen, you were down here. If you were a Roman citizen, you were up a little bit. Obviously, emperors and kinds of stuff were super up. But, but it's, I mean, Paul, they're, they're, they're going to send them free. They got, they're free to go. And Paul says, no, 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 no. I'm a Roman citizen, by the way. And this is what you've done to us. How dare you treat us this way? So it's interesting how Paul uses his Roman citizenship. Um. To get him and those associated with him benefits, if you will um, I just that 's kind of interesting how that happens they're they're asked to leave, but they are s- sent with ma- major apologies, and Paul would do that from time to time and you know use that when it would benefit him and help him out along the way okay um The pinnacle of this particular trip, one might say, is uh, when he gets to Athens, or when they get to Athens. If you'll flip to sixteen or chapter seventeen, verse sixteen. So, verse sixteen: When Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So, just as a backdrop, remember: this is you know Athens is. Sort of the hub of 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 uh, you know the uh, Greek goddess, gods, and goddesses, and all that. And so, all those gods and goddesses that we know about, all of them had a statue honoring them um, at the uh, you know in, in at the Areopagus or outside the Areopagus in Athens. Verse seventeen. So he argued in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and also in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. Also, some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers debated with him. Some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others says, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign divinities. This was because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So in that context, this idea about this man who is part man, part God, that dies and comes back to life would have seemed a little foreign to them. Because in the, uh, in the Greek gods and goddesses arena, for the most part, the gods and the mortals are fairly separate. There are a couple of crossovers, but not, not anything like what we find in Jesus. So this would have seemed very foreign to him. 19, so they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus and they asked him, "May We know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. It sounds rather strange to us, so we would like to know what it means. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners living there would spend their time in nothing but telling or hearing something new. So Paul found himself in this situation, this very strange and foreign land, but among people who were very learned and smart and wanted to hear of new ideas and be challenged by new ideas and think on them and react to them and debate with them. I mean, that's sort of the lay of the land of Athens at this time. 22, Then Paul stood in front of the Areopagus and said, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription, To an unknown God. Now, why would a culture that had an idol for every god and goddess have an idol to an unknown god? If, one. <laughs> if, you, if, if you believe in multiple gods, you might miss one. Exactly. So, they're, yeah, they're covering their backsides here a little bit here. It's interesting. But look what Paul does in the verse 23. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. And so for the next few verses, he goes through this long, not super long, but semi-long exposition on Jesus and saying, this is the unknown God that you're referencing here. You don't know him. I do. I want to tell you about him. The language, the verbiage that he uses is different than what we would find elsewhere. It is very much in the style and in the language of where he is, which in a lot of ways was Paul's gift and honestly is, I think, a... A lesson for all of us that when we are trying to share Jesus in a strange and foreign land, which we are living in right now in this world, we've got to, we can't talk about Jesus like we did 50 years ago. Um, So he goes through this saying, and we skip over to 32. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some scoffed, but others said, We will hear you again about this. At that point, Paul left, but some of them joined him and became believers, including Dionysus the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. So Paul comes into the city, very distraught by all these idols, um, overwhelmed. And then he sees his, his ticket in. He sees his way to share Jesus with these people who he, at first glance, had, would have no way of hanging a hat on it is. And it's that idol to an unknown God. Um, Paul uses ideas and concepts familiar to Greek philosophy in that following those following verses that I didn't read to make his case. Um, if he said the same thing uh, to the Jewish Christians back home, it would, it would have been like, what? Um, If he had tried to describe Jesus in the same way he would have described it to a Jewish Christian establishment in Jerusalem or elsewhere, it would have been like, what? So he he is smart enough and savvy enough to know the language he needs to speak. Um, And I lift this instance up as what I think the church um, of North America for the past Well, we've we've really felt it the past 10 or 15 years, but it's probably been 50 years and we probably got another 50 years of it, of of what our task is. We are living in Athens and we are trying to find a way to tell people about Jesus in, in a strange and foreign land. And our task is to find that to an unknown God idol and use that as an end to look for ways to explain Jesus to the people who need to hear him um, in ways they'll understand and will resonate without changing who Jesus is, right? That's the challenge. So I, I love this as a mission paradigm, which is really key because we've had, when we've talked about like North America, mission to other parts of the world, we have had a really bad paradigm. We have gone in to other places and we have tried to tell them about Jesus the way it is here, which is a very western-centric, white-centric kind of way, and we go to those other places and we can really foul things up. So what we need to do is, when we, when we go to other places to do mission work, we really need to be helping understand what Jesus might mean in their culture, not just taking what we have here and cookie cutting it and placing it there. So um, good, a good way to kind of look at it. And also, like I said, to recognize that we are essentially a mission field. Um, uh, Did you know that we are on track? I don't know exactly when, but there will be more missionaries from other countries serving here than we are sending elsewhere. That is coming very soon we will in many ways we already are but we will certainly we are on our track to definitely be a mission field here in America which feels weird but that's the reality of it mm-hmm. so something to think about Christianity is growing fastest in what places right now Korea. Africa South America and Korea. Asia, Asia. yep yeah. so all right um Two mission trips is not enough, so he wanted to do a third. So, about a four-year mission trip journey, not too long after. Um, Kind of roughly in the same areas, um, but in particular, he spent a good chunk of time in Ephesus. He hung out a lot in Ephesus. In fact, that was three of the four years in Ephesus. So, if if you look, there's a lot of bouncing around in here. All these little coastal towns and inland towns and then got down here to Crete, swung up. Now we're going over into Rome. That was the ending of that. Everything is kind of moving to the west in Paul's journeys. Paul gets in prison again in Caesarea. Charges of sedition by the Jews and he spent two years in prison there um, and despite the fact that Paul was a Roman citizen and he played that card a time or two, there was still a little bit of tension in his calling uh, as, as furthering this church, but also the fact that he was a Roman citizen. And at some point, things kind of come to a head. Um, and so we find that in, in Acts in particular. Um, Paul gives a defense of himself uh, in chapter 26. We're not going to look at that. Um, but but again, we we got to keep in mind who is writing Acts. Remember, he's the writer of Luke, and one of the things we learned about Luke is that Luke really wants to show these sort of privileged uh, Gentile people that um, you know you need to be aware of the needs and tending to the needs of the marginalized and the oppressed. Um, but that, and that you can do that and also be a good citizen at the same time, a good Roman citizen at the same time. So when we read Acts, we've got to always read through that lens because he is not going to um, put uh, uh, Roman citizens in a, bad spot, in a bad light in the faith. He wants to show in this whole narrative, this double narrative, that you can be a good Christian and be a good Roman citizen. Okay? Uh, 27, he has shipwrecked um, but uh, recovers from that, heads on to Rome Um, does not have a lot of luck in Rome engaging the Jewish people about this Jesus guy, they're just not interested he does however have more luck with the Gentiles so there's an even greater sign that this movement is expanding outside the Jewish circles to the non-Jewish world um and at the end of uh, at the end of uh, twenty eight and this time in Rome, uh, there's a very direct let me look at. I can't remember what it is off the top of my head, but it is makes it very clear what Paul is about and what the writer of Luke Acts is seeking to do. Um, verse twenty eight, chapter twenty eight, verse twenty eight. Let it be known to you then that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen so that's kind of where the book of acts and the journeys of paul end in rome which is for a lot of reasons very appropriate why is it appropriate that that acts and paul we we conclude paul's journey with rome Center of the Roman Empire. Um, that's where that's where all the that's where that, that's where everything happens and there's the church right there and there's Paul right there and it's that outreach almost that's now an inreach to be honest. So yep. So it started where? Where did it all start? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Yeah. And now we're in the center of the whole known world. So you see the movement. Mm-hmm. That's the whole point of Acts. Acts is about going out and then further and then further and then further. There's nothing that's kept in. So and it's really interesting if you think back to Luke and you start if you if 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 you sit down and read Luke and then skip John and then start Acts and read, you will literally see this sort of movement because that of course started in in Palestine in and you know all those places and then just slowly moved out, 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 out. The expansion. Is what they're trying to get at. Okay? Any questions on Acts? It really when you when you read it as a whole, it really reads it's it's an interesting read. There's it's a cool novel. It's like chapters and different steps along the way. Um, I never I didn't have a great appreciation for it initially. In Steve, before we go on, just yeah. to just a comment, I, I thought maybe it should go further, like what happens to him at the end. Like yeah. I felt hanging a little bit. Uh, he's in prison, that's the end. So. Yeah. I think, I wonder if that's an intentional uh, uh, writer's, writer's device de- yeah. of leaving it a little unsettled, kind of like the way that Mark, the original Mark, ended with the open tomb and kind of left it hanging. It's like you get to sort of write the finish yourself or you get to be part of the story. I wonder if that's kind of what he's going after, right? So, yeah. <clears throat> so summary of Acts real quick. Second half, Luke, uh, mission to the Gentiles. That's where the future of the church is. Paul was an important part of that. It's really about Paul's trips. Um, presents Christianity as a legitimate religion that does not threaten the Roman government, even though we know that not that Christianity ever would have taken over, but the Roman government definitely felt threatened by this, but it's trying to thread that needle. Um, And again, it's focusing on only one movement of the church out from Jerusalem, but it was going out in all kinds of different directions. Okay? All right. so now we're going to dig into a little more about Paul specifically, the person, and start looking ahead at the letters that are coming because that's really what we're going to be spending the bulk of the rest of our time together on. Um, So, I don't know why this thing didn't quite load correctly, but so Paul's important to the church, his actions. We already talked about these mission trips. I mean, that was a huge part of what he did. He was gone more than he was at home (laughs) doing this kind of thing, helping churches grow and flourish. He helped further the growth of the Gentile church, which again is why we are here today. Um, But it's not only what he did that is important. Equally important is what he wrote. Um, Almost half of the New Testament is attributed to Paul. We're going to talk about what letters scholars believe were definitely written by Paul and what letters maybe say they were written by Paul but most scholars think weren't and why. We'll talk about that. Um, But his influence in these 13 letters was profound. And one of the things that we don't realize is how much our understanding of God and Jesus and things like grace that Betty mentioned earlier Comes from this guy and his writings. We just don't... We, we don't have a sense of that. But the theolo- the theology that we all have been operating with for as long as we've been in the church has its or origins in some of these... Most of these letters that Paul wrote. And we just are unaware of that connection because it's such a part of our DNA as people of faith. So... Um, when, when we start looking at these letters, you'll get it because he'll, we'll be summarizing a letter and it says, Paul said that grace is important. And you'll go like, well, duh. But the whole point is, is that the reason that we go, duh, is because Paul thought it up first, mm-hmm. right? So you have, to, you have to sort of think backwards that way. Um, so what he thought was important, his theology, as I was just saying, much of what we believe about the basis of God, Jesus, salvation, grace, come directly from what Paul wrote and what he taught and preached. Um Harris, that's a supplemental reading that some of you have been in, um, had this saying. This, this makes people's faces scrunch. but he wrote, there is perhaps more of Paul than Jesus in official Christianity. There is perhaps more of Paul than Jesus in official Christianity. What do you think he means by that? Okay. All right. Paul's work and reading and actions had more of a reach. Uh huh. Okay. Sure. sure. Just the length of ministry, right? Three, three years versus several long, extended tours. He was engaged in things. Yeah. More, more time. Okay. Well, he gave us thoughts, and Jesus gave us examples. Uh huh. Uh huh. So it's uh-huh. more about thinking. Yep. And it had a bigger influence on the area, a larger, wider area. Physical area. Right, right. When I would teach this class to the um, community college class, there would always be some people in the class that would just push back so hard on that because it does sound a little anathema, right? Um, But the the point I think is all the things that you mentioned our understanding of the Christian faith and who Jesus is is attributed directly to Paul. Is it um, that you interpreted? I would say, yeah, he interpreted, he gave us ways to understand Jesus. And that doesn't mean Jesus is any less important. Jesus is still the reason for it all, but, but the way, the reason we think the things about Jesus and our faith that we do is primarily because of, of Paul. So, I just, Found that an interesting statement to ponder. There is more, of, perhaps, more Paul than Jesus in official Christianity. He does say perhaps. So, <clears throat> so quick bio of Paul. Who was Paul? <clears throat> he was born um, a few years after Jesus in Tarsus, and again as a Roman citizen. That's key. Um, his name was Saul. We talked about the name change at his conversion. Uh, raised in the Hebrew tradition, he was a Hellenized Jew which means he was brought up um, as a Jewish person, but um, as a Roman citizen in this sort of uh, Gentile, Greek-infested culture, um, if you will, and that's that's Hellenization, as like that. So he was this sort of, um, and he wasn't the only one that was sort of op- living in two worlds in that regard. Um, educated home by his father and later at the synagogue school, we know he was a Pharisee. Um, of the Torah, and that uh, we also know as an adult, he persecuted followers of Jesus. He saw them as a threat to keeping the purity of the Hebrew faith. Um, he had a conversion experience uh, in Acts 9. Vision of Jesus on the road to Damascus. He was blinded for three days, shut him down. Um there's this wonderful story in Acts about the conversion to Christianity with Ananias. Ananias, um, uh, Ananias has a vision that says, go to Paul or go to Saul and tell him about me. And Ananias says, hey, Jesus, um, listen, I don't know if you've heard, but this dude is bad news. And Jesus says, go. And so he goes and realizes that he's part of something special uh, in helping uh, Saul to become Paul. And there was a period, understandably so, where the Christians, followers of Jesus, were like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not into this Paul thing, sorry. Um, your track record speaks for itself. But over time, Paul demonstrated that he truly had changed and so that they wanted to, uh, so that he became part of the movement and we all know about the, the mission trips and all that kind of stuff. So we talked a couple class, classes, I think it was last class, about when Paul was a Pharisee, how he would go to the synagogue, find the people on the roster, um, ask the whoever, the priest, tell me these people who are being swayed by Jesus, and he would go and persuade them not to anymore. So um, when he was Paul and he became Paul, um, this, is his, this was his new pattern. He would go to like the largest city in the region that he would set up shop um, at a local synagogue. If the synagogue didn't work, he would try to find a home that would be receptive to him. But the goal would be to start a church. Now, of course, it was not the goal to buy some land and, you know, build a facility and raise a steeple. It was finding some people who would be willing to meet and engage the common life together as followers of Jesus Christ. Um, That was what a church meant. At the same time, because Paul had to eat, he would also go into the local marketplace. He was a tent maker, right? And so he would go there to set up shops so he could sell his tents. But also, he would tell people about Jesus. Um, He would invite them to come to church. He would invite them to come to church. People would come because he would invite them to come to church. What's the number one reason that people today wind up going to a church? Apparently someone personally invited them. Someone invited them. Mm-hmm. So any Sunday that you're here and you look and see all those empty pews and go, man, I wish there were more people here. <laughs> That's and, what you keep telling us. I know, I'll keep telling it to you, right? Keep inviting them. Um but then Paul would do something really, really, really important. <clears throat> once a church got established and once there was an infrastructure, more or less, I mean, there wasn't a, you know, I mean, they didn't have at the time, you know, uh, officers and trustees and blah, blah, blah. But once they had a sustainable system in place, Paul would leave and he would go do the same thing elsewhere. And that was the key thing. He would not stay and just kind of ride it out there. He would wait until he got to the point where they are sustainable on their own and then he would go elsewhere. And that's if he hadn't done that, there wouldn't be as many churches and all that. Okay. He would also come back and periodically check up on the churches, and he would correspond with them about issues that were going on. He would keep in touch. And those are the letters that we have. So in these letters where we where he is explaining theology and unpacking God and Jesus and salvation and grace. He's almost always doing it in the context of um, correspondence with the churches he had had some relationship with following up on them. Maybe he's heard back from them. Things are not going great. Paul had zero problem telling the church what he felt they needed to hear, whether they wanted to hear it or not. Paul had no bones about that. And so he would engage that. These letters were to be read in public, maybe as sort of a sermon, a very, very long sermon. Um, But for the entire church community, uh, that's how they were meant to be engaged. Um, So it's interesting to think about the letters being checking in, check-ins, advice-giving, admonishing in some place. The one letter that we notice to be super different is Romans. Romans is a very long letter. Romans is almost, Romans is the most deeply theological of all the letters. And there's no real issue he's writing about. He had not been to the Roman church at that point in time. And there's, most scholars believe that it was a fundraising letter. Mm -hmm. That he was writing to get support from the Rome, Rome church or Rome churches, it was multiple churches to support him in his missionary travels. So by telling them what he's doing and telling them what he thinks and believes, it's like, oh yeah, this guy's aligned with us, so we'll be happy to support him. So even in early church, there was stewardship. Did he, <laughs> could, you, could you say that Paul somewhat institutionalized Christianity? Not Paul as much. Paul was still when Paul was doing his thing, it was still more organic, but we find the generation after Paul and, and, and we'll start looking at some of the other letters, that's when you start seeing things about officers and elders and deacons and those kinds of things. We don't find that with, with Paul. And just the emphasis on personal salvation as versus taking care of your neighbor. Um I don't know. Uh, I can see where I can see where the question was, was Paul more interested in personal salvation than about taking care of your neighbor? I don't know that I would go that far. I think my guess would be that the the accepted norm is taking care of your neighbor. Paul spends a lot of time on salvation and grace because people were trying to work out theologically what it meant to be a follower of Jesus. But he also makes reference in his letters about, hey, take care of this person. Hey, I've heard about so-and-so. I mean, you know, there's always that sort of thing in there, too. But what he's usually doing is helping churches wrestle with some of the more theological conflicts that they have. I mean, the Baptist church, you know, is so strongly calling uh, the Book of Romans. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Constantly. As versus some other. correct correct yeah yeah i mean if, if if you want to stay in your head and, and you want to look for paul that stays in your head you can certainly find it i don't know that it would be fair to say that that is all paul was about or all that paul did i think all it's right. just yeah, yeah. But influential in that direction. right right yeah no no good yeah good thinking good good comments um, <clears throat> any other any other any other comments on just sort of the general general Paul stuff? Uh, the reason for the <coughs> sequence of the letters. Reason for the why? Well, I'm sorry. The sequence was it about when they think they were written or length? Or we will talk. I think later we will talk about why in our Bible the letters are laid out the way that they are. They're not entirely in sequential order. Um, but well, yeah, we'll, we'll kind of get into that a little bit. So, so in our new Testament, there are 13 letters that are attributed to Paul, which means it says in there more than likely somewhere in there, quote, I comma Paul dot, 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 end quote. All right. So the person that's writing is claiming to be Paul. Most scholars believe that seven of those thirteens are certainly written by Paul and six are what they call disputed. Um, <clears throat> so here are the undisputed letters from Paul. That there's fairly good, fairly good consensus on from scholarship. Romans, <clears throat> First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Philippians, First Thessalonians, and Philemon. The ones that are in question are Second Thessalonians, Colossians, Ephesians, Titus, and First and Second Timothy. And when we talk about these letters, we'll talk about why scholars do not agree that they were in fact written by Paul. Um, But in a general sense, why are those six disputed letters disputed? Number one, um, the verbiage is different. If you look at those seven, and then you look at the other six, it's different. Um, This is like, you know, I don't do this, but if I got really lazy one week and said, I don't want to bother writing a sermon, and I found one online that I didn't write, and I read it, it would probably feel different. They were probably You probably noticed that I use a lot of the same phrases and say sort of the same things, just we're people, but if I got there and read someone else's sermon, it would feel different, it would sound different. Again, I've never done that, I will not ever do it, but as an example. So vocabulary is different and it's notable. So that means something. Sometimes the theology is different. Um, Not like hugely different because there's a reason things are in the canon as opposed to things not being in the canon. But some of the fine points that Paul finds, you know, goes back to these are outside of that. I once had a a pastor mentor of mine that said, every preacher has three good sermons in them and that's okay i like saying it as a comfort, not as a you need you need to fight it for it. It's like yeah, three things you keep a return to. You I've been here for almost seven years. You probably notice I have Well, my three are. But so you you know when there's something else that pops up that just it's it's different enough, and that's what they notice. It's not that it's bad theology. It's said it's something that's not a typical thing Paul talks of. Um, the other factor is that pseudonymity was a common practice. And an accepted practice in that day and time, it was common to use the name of someone else who was more well or who was well known more than you, and attach it to your reading. We would call that plagiarism, or I maybe mean not plagiarism, but we would call that not right. But back then, it was a perfectly acceptable thing, all right, um, because that way you make sure that you got your message heard. So. The important thing to realize is that even though these letters are disputed, that does not lessen their importance in the canon or the message that they are choosing to convey. It is only a matter of the fact that just there's wide consensus that these letters were not written by a person. But they are still important letters to have. Okay. <clears throat> Paul's letters had a common form. We're wrapping up here. Um, and this was more or less common to the day and era of letter writing. It was a salutation, greetings, hello, I'm Paul, and writing to the person, whoever it was addressed to. Then there would be a section of thanksgiving. I am so thankful for the good work that you are doing in your church. I hear this, and I hear that, and I'm very, very grateful. Um, celebrating what the church was doing. So that would be a common, a common thing that would happen. You would start with that. Because when you get to stuff that you are not as much celebrating, you want to at least have started with the stuff to lift up. We do the same thing today, right? Steve, I really liked your sermon on Sunday. I really liked the image you gave and it was just very captivating. Now, can we talk about everything else? (laughs) I'm teasing. So after greetings and after a section of Thanksgiving, the main part of the letter, the body, was what he was writing about. That was the main thing he was getting across and it could be anything. Um, I've heard that... Some are eating food off or by idols. I've heard that some of you are saying that you belong to Cephas or you belong to Apollos or you belong whatever. We all belong to Jesus. I've heard there's division. Um, why did you not listen to me in the last letter I wrote to you? That's one. So we find that a lot. So he's sharing his theology and his views. He's discussing issues in the church that concerned him. Um, he's not really asking, hey, would you like my opinion? That's one of the things about Paul. Paul is not one to kind of go, hey, I don't know. if I mean, tell me if you're not interested in this, but if I, I'd like a few things to suggest that that's okay. That's not Paul. Paul just assumes that you want to hear it. Um, seeking support for mission efforts. We'll get to that a little bit. Hey, can you take up a collection? Um, this fun little word, paranesis, is sort of the winding down of the letter. Uh, Say hi to so-and-so for me. Remember to love each other. Always be thankful. And then more of the same in the wrapping up of the letter. So that's kind of the crux of how the letter. Uh, I think we're really close to finishing up. Uh, Much of what the Paul Church today believes comes directly from Paul's theology. Some highlights. God reveals God's. And again, a lot of this is going to be like, duh. But again, just remember it was all a blank slate before Paul came along and clarified some of these things. God reveals God's self through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is a revelation of God's work in the world. That idea came from Paul. The centrality of Jesus and the change that Jesus offers to humanity. That came from Paul. This idea of the church being the body of Christ that we live with. I talk about it ad nauseum. Not ad nauseum, but a whole, whole lot. That came from Paul. (coughs) Justification by faith and not by law that was a huge new concept that Paul brought a former Pharisee nonetheless mm-hmm. right that you can, you can be justified because you believe in Jesus and not because you have to follow 613 laws that was a big big seismic shift and Paul was the one that helped bring it about um, there were three important covenants in the history of God's people <laughs> covenant of Abraham the promise of the land covenant with Moses, a promise of sort of a nation, a peoplehood. Anyone want to guess who the third covenant was with? It really should not take. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, if you don't answer, if you just say Jesus, you're going to be right about 50% of the time, <laughs> right? Covenant with a Jesus, promise of salvation for all. Again, justification by faith because you don't have to become a Jew first. You don't have to be circumcised faith in Jesus. So we will see those scattered all throughout the letters as we look at them individually, which we'll do in the next couple of weeks. What do you mean by the centrality of Jesus? Um, I mean, quite, not to be uh, redundant, but just the, the importance of Jesus to the Christian faith. Yeah. Yeah. I know. It's kinda of like, well duh. I <laughs> know. But yeah. But remember there are other the laws there, would have been just as important. So he was Yeah, and, and, and there are other there are other teachers that are happening around the same time. It's not like when Jesus came along any other potential Messiah or teacher said, I'm out, you know, this guy's too awesome for me. I mean, there are other things going around. And and, and in fact, a lot of the letters that Paul writes his writing to churches saying, Hey, I heard so and so showed up don't listen to him right so that was a really important thing to sort of hit on is Jesus is a center of all of this and not Harold or whoever other yeah okay do you mind giving us the ones who are certain that Paul was that seven again yes let me go back here it would be right there On that note, we will finish. Yes, indeed. Blessings to you all. You can write this around. But thank you for being here. Till next time.